You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Love that hymn. I love that poem. It just belongs to this litany of beautiful art that um, talks about the sufficiency of Christ. So one question for you this morning as we get going. Just want you to think about it. Where is your hope? Really think about that. What are you counting on? Where is your hope? Come back to that from time to time this morning. Here's the story. I'm a dad. I'm the dad of three kids, our youngest being a daughter. And some of the most uh, beautiful, tender conversations I've ever had with another human being have been with Hannah, our daughter, uh, just around bedtime. And if you're a parent, you kind of know what I'm talking about. So here's a quick story. Um, This is not from our bedtime stories, but this is from another one. So a dad was tucking his daughter into sleep one night, and she asks him, she says, Dad, when could Jesus come back? And the dad kind of says, well, uh, come back whenever he wants to, I guess, you know. So the daughter says, okay. And they continue on with their little bedtime story, and she interrupts him a few moments later and says, Dad, could he come back soon? The dad kind of says, well, yeah, he could, he could come back soon, honey, yeah, yeah. So they kind of continue back in their story, and she says, Dad, 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 could he come back tonight? So the dad closes the book, puts the book away, and he says, yeah, honey, he could come back tonight. Why? What's, what's on your mind? And she says, Daddy, could you get my hairbrush? I want to get ready. Love that story. Where is your hope? Do we live with that kind of hope? So welcome this morning, whether you're in the room here today, you're watching online, sitting on your couch, or from a campsite, because it's Memorial Day weekend, who knows? Glad you guys are here. Maybe you've wondered this, I don't know, maybe you haven't, but why do we preach what we preach here? Um, Like, what's the point behind this series or any other teaching series that we do? Um, One of my favorite thinkers, a man named John Stott, says it like this. He says that good preachers, and therefore good preaching stands with one foot in the Word and one foot in the newspaper. Or if you want to contemporize that, one foot in your social media newsfeed. We live in these two worlds. Here's the idea. God's Word says that the deepest need of a broken and aching world is to know the lasting hope of Jesus. And I know that sounds laughably simplistic, doesn't it? Like, that's it, really. But I really mean it. When I look at our world, I see the same thing that you do. I see tired people aching for rest. I see frustrated people stuck in hopelessness. I see exhausted people looking, turning, and running everywhere and getting nowhere. And you heard Pastor Micah talk about it, but when we are rocked by the news of our world like we've seen this past week, needless violence, it just doesn't seem like it's stopping, If we're not careful, the church can kind of get wrapped around the axle of debates, rights, and policies. Meanwhile, while we're busy following the culture in a thousand different places with a million different words, there's this giant, silent vacuum where the gospel needs to be. 
Here's what worries me. It's entirely possible. I'm not sure if you thought about this. It's entirely possible to suggest a thousand and one different solutions to the hurt and pain of our world and miss the one that matters. The deepest need of a broken and aching world is to know the hope of Jesus. You believe that? I hope you do. So this morning we're closing out this series called Cross Reference and all these really crucial questions around the person and work of Jesus. Just a quick look in the rearview mirror to see where we've been. Week one, why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin and what's the deal with Mary? How she figure into this whole thing? Week two, why does Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? Week three, why did he have to live a fully human life? Week four, why did he have to die this painful, violent death? Last week, why did he have to rise from the dead? And then here today, why did he have to ascend, sit at the Father's right hand, and why is he coming back? What is with all of this? And so each one of these weeks has kind of followed the same sort of roadmap. We've asked three kind of sub-questions. What does this doctrine mean? Why is it so significant? And what in the world am I supposed to do about it? And so that's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're wrapping up our series with Jesus' ascension and his promise to return one day. And here's a little summary statement for you, for you guys that are taking notes. Here you go. Jesus' ascension and return helps us make sense of our world and prepare for the next one. I'll say that again because it's a big idea. Jesus' ascension and return helps us make sense of this world and prepare for the next one. And so for that, we're going to throw the car in reverse a little bit, and we're going to just kind of rewind and just start right after the resurrection. And You know the story. Crucifixion happens on Good Friday, and then Easter morning, Sunday, just a couple of days later, and then 40 days go by in the New Testament. We don't often think about that, do we? Those 40 days, just a quick hit. Here's what happens. Jesus shows up Easter morning. He presents himself first to Mary Magdalene. I've always thought that's interesting that the first person he chose to reveal himself to was someone of a social outcast, Mary Magdalene. And then Peter and John, we talked about their little foot race last week to the tomb. And then the other disciples. He appears to two other guys on the road to Emmaus, has dinner with them, and then he vanishes. And there were likely other appearances that the gospel writers didn't write down because let's remember, Jesus is a minor celebrity around Jerusalem. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody had heard about this controversial Jewish rabbi who had been violently crucified and then rose from the dead. Even Paul wrote two decades later to the church in Corinth in, in about 53 AD, he said this. He said, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at the same time many of whom are still alive. Now that's really cool when you think about it. Just let your mind go there for a minute. In these, in these gap days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time, many of whom are still alive, Paul says to the church in Corinth. And so that's a staggering thought that in your little first century house church, that you could be worshiping next to people who literally saw the risen Jesus people that you sit next to in worship or people you pray with literally saw Jesus between that gap, between his resurrection and his ascension. Kind of crazy. But here's the thing. If you chart all those resurrection or post-resurrection appearances out, there always seems to be this strong, if sometimes unspoken sense of Jesus saying, I'm not done yet. There's more to come. 
So to kick things off, let's head to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts is the historical telling of the early church, written by a historian, interviewer, reporter, doctor named Luke. Acts paints the picture for us. So we're going to start in Acts 1, and we're just going to look at the first couple of paragraphs. Here it is, Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, we'll come back to that, O Theophilus, we'll come back to him, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is how the scene kind of starts. And Jesus just says, hey, I'm doing something. Just, just wait. Sit tight. Which is not at all what would have happened, because if you would have seen your risen Savior, you would have been lit on fire to go tell anybody else. And Jesus says, hey, wait, wait. There's something coming. Sit tight. So then kicks off really in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, and this is me, I kind of think it's Peter, but that's just me. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So if you're looking for a text to support global missions. That's one. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so a few quick details, and then we'll kind of press into what we mean by this, all right? What does this doctrine mean? What are we talking about? So first, who's Theophilus, and what's he have to do with this? So first century writers, um, guys like Luke, were sometimes sponsored by a wealthy patron who took interest in a given subject. This would be like a grad school student who's given some kind of a grant to pursue an area of focus. Theophilus' name, um, likely a pseudonym or like an honorary title that Luke used to protect the identity of this spiritually curious seeker sponsor. Theophilus' name means, interestingly, loved by God. That's who this guy is. But secondly, what's with this first book stuff? Did you catch that? Where Luke says, in my first book, Theophilus, well, Luke's contribution to the New Testament is originally it's a two-volume work. Volume number one is what's come to be known as the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about what Jesus did and who he was. Volume number two is the book of Acts. So like we mentioned, Luke was a doctor by vocation. Ethnically, he was Greek. And I only mention that because likely being a higher class, he stood more to lose, maybe his reputation, maybe his own business, his livelihood, by aligning himself with Jesus, maybe a little bit more to lose than Peter, James, and John, and the others. In the contentious spiritual climate of the first century, writing about Jesus was a little bit of a risk. 
Third thing, and this is where we'll really kick this into gear, in verse 6 is where the scene really kicks off with something nobody expected. Jesus says, wait, 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 stay here. And then standing there, he ascends into heaven. Then two men, presumably angels in white robes, say, don't worry, he's coming back. And then after verse 11, that's it. Like if you kept reading the book of Acts, it's like this movement called the church just sort of kicks over into motion. And at the risk of a massive oversimplification, here we are 2,000 years later just riding that exact same wave. This is the last anybody ever sees of Jesus on earth. And here we are. 2,000 or so years later, recipients of the same story, part of the same spiritual family, storytellers of the same legacy. But I want to name something that I think is important here before we get too deep. Um, as Jesus moves through the Gospels, and maybe even as we've moved through this teaching series, and we talk about who Jesus is, you can almost chart belief falling off. Here's what I mean. Initially, people are really intrigued by this person named Jesus, and they're curious, right? He's saying some interesting things. He seems like a really kind, loving person. And if you said that today, if you asked the general public, if you said, hey, do you believe there's a man that, named Jesus who really existed and taught in the first century? Most people would probably say, yeah, yeah probably. And then if you push it a little further and say, okay, do you believe that he lived a sinless life? I mean, it's probably really hard to do, but maybe, you know, depends on how you define sin, but maybe, I guess it's possible. Okay, do you believe that he died on a Roman cross and then three days later rose again? Uh, I don't know, I'm not so sure about that one. Okay, do you believe that he literally bodily ascended into heaven where he sits at his father's right hand and he will literally return one day? Yeah, that's like a little, I don't know. It seems like a little bit hard of a press for me. You see what happened there in that scope? No different in the first century. As we move through the claims of Christ, belief kind of tapers off as the claims become more incredible. And here's why I bring that up. Um, this last week I was sitting with somebody and we were having a great conversation um, about the importance of Jesus in a post-nominal Christian world who Jesus is, what he did, and why it's so important. And perceiving our conversation to be a little bit of a safe place, um, this person asked me, they said, hey, all right, seriously, like, what if this is all just made up? Like, what if, I mean, really, you know, and it's kind of great because they're talking to a pastor so they know the answer, like they know where I'm at on the whole thing. But they're like, so seriously, like, what if this is just all made up? Like, what if that's even possible? Like, what if, what if this is just... A wisp of smoke in the wind. And it led to a great discussion about faith, belief in things that we don't see, and doubts, these very real feelings, these misgivings. And isn't it made all the more poignant when we look at our world? You read the news this last week. You know what's going on. You watch things, you see things. And as Jesus is coming back to get his church, gets one day further from the promise here, doesn't it just seem like, oh gosh, and doubts start to sound a little bit louder 
and faith. So with all that hanging out there, second question we've got to ask this morning is, why is this doctrine so significant? (laughs) This idea of Jesus' ascension and his return. And for this, and to answer any doubts in our own hearts, I want to head to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, in case you've never read it, my opinion, is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. And for the next few minutes, I think you're going to get a sense for why at least I think that's the case. Romans 8 is smack in the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans is Paul's epic, his big theological tome. This is his masterpiece, his Sistine Chapel. Romans 8 has some of the most beautiful language in the entire book. Let's remember, Luke is the doctor reporter. Paul is the lawyer pastor. Luke gives us the history. Paul gives us the personal implication. Luke gives us the black and white sketch, the outline. Paul provides the richness and color. Romans 8 is Paul waxing eloquent about this one day in the future where Jesus will come back. So more to our point this morning, though. In a world of deepening divisiveness and what feels like deepening doubt, I want to offer Romans 8, not just as a way of understanding Jesus' one-day return, but also as a way of interpreting the events in the world in which we live, especially this past week. Here's what Paul says. Romans 8, verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been Groaning. We're going to stop there for a second. What's that mean? We'll get to what follows in a minute. But what does he mean when he says all creation has been groaning? We need to see this and really understand it. It's a really stirring description, isn't it? Creation groaning, all of it. This is the experiential effect of sin cascading across the centuries. If it helps, this is just the aftertaste of the apple from the garden. What does this mean, and what does it have to do with Jesus' return? Creation groaning. This is this guttural, wordless, like, when you read about 21 students and teachers in Texas, and you don't know what to say. This is that mechanical whir of ventilators next to hospital bedsides, just this in and out machines. This is the beeping and chirping of heart scanners and pulse ox monitors. This is creation groaning. Creation groaning. This is you as a spouse when you've been hurt, wounded, or betrayed. No words. You just go. That wordless but very real frustration is apparent at the end of your rope and you see a wayward child and you go, Students, this is when you realize like the world can be a harsh and hurtful place and you just go, what do I do? Creation groaning. It's the magnitude of a hurricane ripping the roof off a building and it's also a dandelion tuft detaching from its stem. This upheaval of an earthquake that levels cities and then the inaudible exhale of a sparrow hitting the ground. From the big headlines, the stuff that everybody in the world knows about, to the small stuff that you say in your car when you think nobody else is listening. (laughs) Prayers that find the surface with trusted friends and prayers that never really find the words to come out. This is creation groaning, the compounded grief and sorrow and shame and pain and heartache 
that comes with living in this beautiful, wonderful, lovely, but still dark, depraved, and sin-wrecked world, creation groaning. And as hard as this is to acknowledge, here's what I love about this. You can't argue with it. We've all experienced this. We all know this. You've sat in those places where there are no words, and you go, ah. Incidentally, it's one of the most remarkable benefits about God's word is it's been given to us as a gift to name the things that humanity cannot name. God's word does us a tremendous service by acknowledging and naming the pain of the world. Paul's just making a point that everybody knows. Everybody feels groaning while we're here. This is a common experience. Even the atheist, the agnostic, or the spiritual skeptic, everybody knows that something is wrong. Atheists still cry at funerals because there's something undeniably woven into the fabric of the human heart that pushes back against death and darkness and brokenness. Whatever faith or lack of faith someone purports to have or not have, there's still something in us that boldly leans in and craves healing and restoration. Am I right? What is that? It's creation groaning. So creation is groaning, but then there's another word that follows. He says, we know all of creation is groaning, but then he says, together. I've been groaning together. Why together? Here's the insight. It's our pain that makes us recognize each other. It isn't our contrived invincibilities that make us human, but it's our irrepressible vulnerabilities. Put as plainly as I can, we're all in this together. (laughs) We all groan. We all know it. And you can see it in others because you see it in yourself. As long as we're here, we are all together in this corporate groaning, which is at once a very sobering but also a very comforting thought, isn't it? It's strange. But then Paul imagines a metaphor, which, of course, you know me. I love a good metaphor. So here's what he says. He has to describe this groaning, and he lands on a metaphor that we probably didn't expect, given the heaviness of creation groaning. Here's what he says. For we know that the whole of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, why childbirth? Let's lighten this up a bit, can we? So, like, I've been in that hospital room three times. Well, four times if you count mine, so (laughs) just thought about that. So four times, but three times that I distinctly remember. And uh, I, I just know that as a man, there are certain subjects that are completely off limits. Like no man can ever say, oh, that hurts so bad. Because no matter whatever level of physical pain you experience as a man, nothing, mm -mm. like I've seen Mandy go through that three times and it was absolutely profoundly heroic. And I'm like, she is amazing. So why does Paul choose the image of childbirth here? Creation is groaning together. All that groaning. Why does he choose childbirth? Hospital rooms have two kinds of groaning. Childbirth because pain, because something better is coming. And then there are death throes. It's another kind of groaning because something beautiful is leaving. And Paul wants us to understand that this pain that we feel between now and the return of Christ. This corporate groaning, this is more like childbirth, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? That the pain of this world, 
for the believer is not the sound of something dying, dimming, or shrinking back, or shutting down, or closing up. When thinking about how to describe this groaning of this world, all the stuff that we just listed a minute ago, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses the metaphor of childbirth. This groaning that we feel, this isn't death throes. It's more like the sound of something being born. So life is painful for now. He says, but hold on, something is coming. Now, why is that important? Why does he want to bring that up? Great question, glad you asked. Because of what he's about to say next. And now Paul narrows his focus and he talks about the uniquely Christian experience, almost out of anticipation. How is this like childbirth, Paul? What's coming? And here's Paul's answer in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Now he's talking to believers. He narrows it. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember, it's like that inkling, this first taste that something better is coming. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That word groan inwardly. Gosh. It's a wonderful, rich word in Greek. It means to sigh, to murmur, to pray inaudibly with grief. So what's he saying? That Christians are not exempt from the groaning. We don't get a free pass. We don't get to groan less. If anything, we groan more. Hmm. We don't get a rose-colored life skipping blissfully through wildflower meadows and butterflies, right? Well, this doesn't sound like the kind of life I want, Paul, right? I want my best life now. I want to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. I want to be more than a conqueror. And Paul's answer is, not in this life. Not yet. The only difference between Christian suffering and the general suffering of all creation is that we have a name for it. We know what it is. We know why it's here. And we know how long it's going to last. It's not forever. Because we know what our Jesus will do, and we know that one day he is coming back, and we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That word wait eagerly that he threw in there, that's the opposite of groan inwardly. It means to expect fully, to look for, to watch, to wait confidently. Paul uses it three times in Romans chapter 8. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, where he says, we are waiting for our Savior, Christ Jesus Again, in Galatians 5, 5, through the Spirit we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Philippians 3, 20, from heaven we await a Savior who's the Lord Jesus Christ. It lines up with that sentiment from Fanny Crosby, that hymn writer, who, blind woman, who said this. She says, perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior and happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. So let's put this together. For Paul, this Christian experience that we now live after Jesus' ascension and before his return, this is the commingling of seemingly opposite emotions. On one hand, we groan inwardly, wordlessly praying, inaudibly sighing, and then, but for some reason, in that same space, we also wring our hands together, knowing, watching, waiting, looking, because our Jesus will return one day to finish the work that he began. Jesus' ascension and return helps us make sense of this world, but also prepare for the next one. 
But there's a problem. And maybe you caught it, and it's right here out of the text. Aren't we already adopted? Think about this. He says, we wait for our adoption as sons. Aren't we already adopted? Wait a second, Paul. Like Ephesians 1, you said we are predestined for adoption as sons. Galatians 4, he says, he sent the son that we might receive our adoption. Even a few verses earlier, Romans 8, 15, he says, you didn't receive a spirit of fear, but you did receive a spirit of adoption. And so here's the problem. All of those sound really past tense, Paul. Some of them like really past tense. So is our adoption this sewn-up thing, like we're all good to go, we're just waiting, stop breathing? Or is our adoption something yet to happen? Saying you got to wait for it. Unless you think I'm being needlessly intellectual or like rabbinical here, just kind of like splitting hairs. Here's the tension. And just to be vulnerable, I'm called, I'm predestined. I'm washed, I'm saved, I'm adopted, I'm loved, I'm part of God's house, I enjoy his family, I'm a member of everything that he wants to give me. But life doesn't always feel that way, does it? For me, you know, sometimes I don't often feel like the son of a father. Sometimes I feel afraid, I feel alone, I feel spooked, I feel scared. I feel less than. Anybody else wrestle with that? If you're like me, I'm willing to bet that you are. You struggle to believe that you are who he says you are because I'm surrounded by creation groaning around me and I've got this inward groaning within me. Adoption by God, this like secure, safe place where grace just lives and freedom abounds seems like this naive, blissful, too good to be true fairy tale. And so I gotta like close my eyes, deny what I see, put my head in the sand and convince myself that this is true despite all the evidence around me. So how should we make sense of this dissonance, Paul? Is this like here or is it here? Is this adoption thing already sewn up or is something yet to come? So by way of illustration, here's the picture. You ever been to an adoption hearing? You ever been part of a a family going down to the courthouse? You stand in that room, they adopt a child. We've had the experience here in the last couple of months, actually, two single moms here at North Canton Chapel who've gone through this experience to adopt a child, to bring them into their home. It's incredible. If you've ever been a part of that process, it doesn't matter if it's the courthouse in Canton or through a Zoom phone call meeting, seeing an adoption process is a really beautiful thing. There's the gathering of, like, friends and family in the lobby, right? All nervously there, like, not sure what to expect, but showing their support. People who've walked with, prayed with, sat with, cried with the adoptive parent or parents throughout this whole season. They're just like witnesses to wonder, you know. There's the kids kind of all dressed up, which I kind of like that part, like usually mom trying to keep them still on their lap. The inevitable squirming because toddlers and legal proceedings usually don't go well together. The judge asks some questions to gain a sense of the Prospective parents, dedication and discernment, and if needed, an attorney or an advocate will speak up. Some friends and family can speak up to lend their support. And then there's this, like, really formal part where, like, it sort of switches gears and the legal language kind of kicks in. And if you're there, you can kind of feel it coming because there is a shift. And the judge, you go, like, oh, my gosh, is this it? Like, look what she's about to do, right? And the judge smiles and she says, I find that it's in the best interest of kids' names go here. 
that they be awarded to, da, 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 and soul custody be awarded to, da, and you're like, oh gosh, right? And then the gavel falls, and when she hits it, everybody in the room just kind of like sits there for a second. There's a gap there. There's this like wordless, very pregnant, very poignant space. Stunned silence where everyone's just kind of going, did this just happen? Like, is that it? Like, like we're done? That was it? Like, that was pretty incredible. Like, after the gavel fall, and then every adoption hearing I've ever been to, someone always starts it. There's like this applause, nervous laughter, like crying, blissful, like weird emotion that just like washes over the entire room. And the kids, of course, usually have no idea what's going on. They're just happy they don't have to sit still anymore, right? And then after the silence, the party can happen. And that's where it all leads. All that pain leads to a party. And if you've been there, you know. Now, here's why I bring that up. Life for the believer is that space between the gavel fall and the party. Life for the believer, this emotionally charged silence between the declaration that we belong to him and the celebration that we realize that we actually do, we are legally his by virtue of confession of the belief in the work of Christ. Positionally, we belong to him. Others are there with us. They've cried with us. They've watched us. They'll celebrate with us. But here's the hard part. In that strange, quiet, beautiful gap between the positional declaration, the gavel that's already fallen, and the celebration the space, we're all kind of holding our breath, going, like, is this it? Is this real? That's life. That's what life is, and it's why life is so tough. Because what's true of us hasn't really sunken in yet, and our adoption is accomplished, but we live for the moment like restless children squirming on our father's lap, unable to sit still long enough to really believe it. Now, with that in mind, just for context's sake, let me read this again. For we know that whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of that is what leads Paul to explode here in verse 24, where he says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what we already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that last word is the kicker, isn't it? It's so hard. Really, Paul? So is our adoption something that happened once upon a time, or is it out there in the future? Yes. It's one of those already not yets of life. So the last piece we got to get to, this third question, and and here's where we'll transition this morning. What are we even supposed to do with this? (laughs) And for this, I want to go back to where it all started. This crowd of bewildered believers on a hillside outside Jerusalem, standing there with their speechless mouths hanging open, their eyes wide, just stunned. Funny thing is, even... Before this happened, Jesus said this was going to happen. Hours before the cross, the disciples could feel the pressure building, 
And here they are, and here's what Jesus says in John 14. He says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas, God love him. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Aren't those just like fresh words for a fallen world? Don't let your heart be troubled. Your heart can be troubled. It's easily troubled. This world wants to trouble your heart. And here's Jesus saying, don't let it happen. Watch your heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, if you believe in God, you're going to believe in me. I'm going to go, but I'm going to be back. And Jesus caps all of those compassionate words off with the charge. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father without me. It's me. So what are we supposed to do with this? I want to ask you to imagine yourself in Thomas's place this morning. I mentioned last week that his moniker, Doubting Thomas, is, I think it's kind of an unfortunate jab. Like, shame on you, Thomas. You should have known better. You walked with Jesus for three years. How dare you be so thin? (laughs) What more proof do you need? But here's something I've noticed about how Jesus handles Thomas. Every time Thomas comes up with his doubts, right? History may shame him for his doubts, pushing him away, but every time he comes up with his doubts, Jesus doesn't push him away. He invites him closer. Here, that invitation is, Thomas, slow down. You don't need a road map. You need me. Later, he says, he invites him. He says, Thomas, come feel my hands. Feel this spear-shaped gash in my side. Thomas, come here. Come here. And isn't that always the way with Jesus? The Gospels are littered with Jesus spending his time welcoming people who don't have their stuff together, the people who can't get it, the unimpressive, the unqualified, the undignified, the less thans, the don't measure ups, the frequently failing, the beaten up, the broken down, and the bloodied, the inwardly groaning, and the desperate. Why is this where Jesus shows up? Why does he go there all the time? Why are these his people? And here's what I just want you to hear. Others may shame you for your doubts, pushing you away. Jesus never will. Jesus always invites you to come closer with him. So here's where we're going to wrap up. Uh, not just today, but I feel like we've got to wrap up this series. Same question I asked you about 30 minutes ago. Where is your hope? What are you counting on? Do you believe that he's coming back one day to get you? Are you really fixing your hope on that? Or are we still flitting around from thing and thing and thing in this world? Still trying to get stuff to make it more comfortable? Or do we hold this world loosely and lightly? Because we know that there is a better day coming. You believe that. Where is your hope? Nobody else can answer that for you. It's got to be you. 
Have you come to the Lord and said, yeah, Lord, I've got a sin problem. I've messed up royally. I've broken your law. I've broken your heart. And I've been groaning for my entire life. And I need you to fix me. Jesus, fix me. You ever said something like that to the Lord? Nobody knows but you. It's not a piece of paper you sign. It's not an aisle you walk. It's not a phone number you call. Have you ever, from your heart, asked for the Lord's forgiveness and received it so that your hope can last? beyond this world. I hope you have. If not, today's the day. We're going to close by singing this song. It's one of my favorites. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let me pray for us. Father, we do praise you for your sovereignty and your goodness. That in eternity past, You called us and you said, they're mine. You knew that we would be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Welcome in your presence because of what Christ has done. And so Lord, for those that are here today that know you, can rest on that, that know, that can sit down on that bedrock of their faith and say, this is my home, he is my savior, and I know where I'm going. For us, Lord, would this next five minutes just be a worship experience just to say, Lord, we love you, thank you. For those that don't know, or for those that this is cloudy, or we are still wondering if, are we good enough? Have we measured up? Lord, I pray today is the day where we just accept what you have done by sending your son to die on a cross to pay our price that we could have this restored relationship with you. We don't need to live in fear anymore. And so would this be a day that we could all say how marvelous And our song will ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for me. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.